the year of 2024 can become a year of consolidation of authoritarian regimes. Liberal democracies are weak and often do not realize the approaching threat. Can we still win this war against Russia in these circumstances? A stronger coalition of freedom-loving societies should be born and response to the Russian aggressiveness should be far more decisive. You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast and its series Thinking in Dark Times. Explain Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a multilingual website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, chief editor of Ukraine World and president of PEN Ukraine. My guest today is Peter Pomerantsev, a renowned British-American author and intellectual, senior fellow at John Hopkins University and author of the best-selling books This is Not Propaganda and Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Peter Pomeranza, welcome to this podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk. And uh, this is, I think, our second podcast in, uh, or oh, third podcast in Explain Ukraine. But we are talking um, in January 2024. And um, everybody is saying that the year will be very difficult for Ukraine. Not and just for Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you expect from this year? What are, what are your concerns? What are your fears? What are your hopes? Well, by the end of this year, um, we might see the, um, you know, uh, a world where Putin and his network of similarly criminal regimes, such as Iran, North Korea, and in some ways China, uh, ruling the world. Up to this point? By the end of the year, they will be in a position of, potentially in a position of what? ascending power and borderline hegemony. What uh, What are the symptoms of that? Because, I mean, Russia, if you take Russia, Iran, North Korea, I mean, their strength is overestimated, no? If you compare the, the strength of the Western countries, if you compare United States plus Europe. But they're uniting also... China is playing a, a very active role in that network as well. So that's a pretty major power. But the main thing is they are coming together. I wouldn't call it an alliance. It's a network, maybe like a criminal network. You know, they're like crime families who are starting to work together. And we're not. So yes, if you know, the freedom-loving countries were to come together, if Europe, Japan, South Korea, America were to come together... In a, in a network of democratic powers, then they could take on anyone. But so far we see real difficulty progressing towards that. And we have the linchpin and the great power in that network in a spiral of self-destruction. 
and it's unclear whether America can exit that. Why is why is it happening? Because uh, I mean, uh, there is of course the sentiment of the demise of the West and etc. And frankly speaking, in Ukraine, we are tired of this narrative because uh, for us, uh, looking from Kiev, it's it's like seeing a strong person, seeing a very strong human being who is just saying, oh, I'm weak, uh, I cannot do anything, and and crying all the time while losing the faith in, in himself or in herself. Why is it happening? Well, firstly, the idea of the West is, is you know, might be much more visible from the outside than the inside. I mean, why is it happening? So many reasons. Um, but... If we're talking about America, I mean, most the banal reason is they had a disastrous 20 years of foreign policy, and now the instinct is to retreat across the country. It's very interesting looking at the sociology among young people. Any mention of a foreign issue, China, Middle East, Ukraine, Russia, any, any foreign thing makes them retreat, makes them less likely to do anything. Yeah. So it's just the outside has become a territory of confusion, loss, defeat, because all they've known is defeat. And they just want to retreat from it. It's a sort of it's a deeply, deeply lost generation who have no living experience or memory of their country playing a positive role in the world and then affects a role in the world. They don't remember September the 11th. All they know is the confusion of Iraq and Afghanistan and just COVID and just problems everywhere. Um, so, so that's what's happening in America. Um, while inside Europe, I think it's, it's more, you know, it's, it's always been hard to gather Europe into a single thing. I mean, these are messy, messy democracies. It's always very hard to get them to work together inside a country, let alone among each other. And um, no one's articulated this vision. I mean, the old West is gone in terms of institutions that are effective. There could be a new one. I'm not saying history has ended. But but the old one is, is, is kind of gone. Or, or it's, I mean, these things never end and start, but... You know, it's like we're seeing the old bit of the city still there, but there's, you know, it's being destroyed as we speak. There are some bits of the old architecture of the West left. Then there's a huge bulldozer called, I don't know, Trump or Salvini knocking bits of it down. And then there's the beginnings of new things as well. Korea, Japan being so active in Ukraine is the start of a new one. So, so I'm not saying it's over. I'm just saying it's the West as we knew it as a set of institutions and assumptions behind those institutions is, is probably over. But we can have a new one. I'm not, I don't mean to be, I don't want to be decline of the West in this sort of like Spenglerian way. Yeah. It's like those, the sets of assumptions, historical imperatives, alliances, narratives has broken, has gone. It just doesn't exist anymore. Very interesting talking to Americans, looking at a lot of sociology about Americans. They still, many of them still want America to play a good role in the world. They're not all isolationist, but they see absolutely no connection between American action in the world 
and America's interests. So that old idea of a Pax Americana, where America supports the rules-based order, and that's good for the American economy, that does not exist at all. Even the arguments being made now, helping Ukraine is good for the American economy, people go, no, no, that's good for some evil companies that we hate. That's good for Boeing. That's not America. So that whole series of connections between security and interest and values has gone. It's not a vote winner. It doesn't exist in people's minds. So that, that, then in that sense, that architecture of the West, the assumptions have gone. Some of the institutions are still there, but we don't really know if they work anymore. But we can build a new one. Yeah, I would like to talk about this probable new order, but let me come back to the this new idea. order. I think yeah. I think let's not use that word. I think somebody used that already. Yeah, let's let's talk about this idea that the West is gone. Uh, I mean, aren't we going into the same trap as, for example, on the other side, like Fukuyamist trap, but uh, Fukuyamist trap, but. Uh, Uh, on the other side, I mean, Fukuyama was saying basically that non-West has gone, like right in in the in the late 80s, early 90s, and he was mistaken because it was naive to think that this authoritarian idea, which is an idea, which is the whole you know history of humankind, uh, I think it's dominated by the authoritarian idea, by the imperialisms or whatever. So it's naive to think that it is gone. And uh, now when we are saying that, yeah, you mentioned Spengler. So every uh, early century, I mean, if we take early 19th century, it was the idea that Europe has gone, the West has gone, like we should come back to medieval times, to religion, whatever. The same story with early 20th century, the same story now. So, so, so I mean, just to be clear, what I'm saying, I don't mean it that way. I don't see this as sort of huge historical cycles. I'm talking about very specifically the institutions and the political logic that represented the West. So not the historical values. So, I mean, NATO and the Euro-Atlantic Alliance and the idea that America, and you, you said it several times, like the global order, all these things, you know, they've lost their embeddedness in, 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 in many ways, in people's minds and political priorities and so on. And they've been going for, for 20 years. We've just been maybe in denial about it, or some of us have been. But in terms of the, the ideas and the values, they're still there. So what's very interesting talking to Americans, no, no, the values are still there. They're very strong. The belief that, you know, Americans should support freedom across the world, that freedom, love, and countries should unite, all that is there. But what's gone is the political logic. So I don't think this is about Spengler. I don't think it's about Fukuyama, who was talking about, you know, the arc of great ideas and all that. No, I, I think actually, and you see it in the amount of people who are trying to emigrate to Europe or US. No, it's still hugely popular, that model. So, so no, we, we have this different divide between, as a set of values, democracy and freedom is still pretty damn competitive. It's the political institutions that are then meant to defend it, and, which and are in a bad state. And here is uh, the very the, the very important concept of defense, because I think that what what is happening with the West right now 
is the idea, okay, we're not anymore ruling the world because there is China, there is India, there is South uh, Africa, there is Latin America. But then there is this idea, okay, we, we're not ruling the world, but we can still set up a set of values and we can be a moral authority or whatever. So we kind of keep our empire, but this is a spiritual empire or this empire <laughs> of institutions or whatever. But who, sorry, who do you think... I don't see anybody in American political elites now who supports that. Well, you're in Europe, it's it's very very clear because. But Europe has no foreign policy. Yeah, but I mean, it's aiding. It has the development policy. It has the biggest budget for for aid to poor countries, whatever. But I think this logic is is also wrong because uh, we are entering an era where these European democracies, American democracies, need to defend themselves. They are in a weak position in, in a way that. They have increasingly this, uh, you, you say, this uh, anti-democratic alliance, which is growing. And, and there is no, so there is still this, what Pascal Bruckner calls tyranny of guilt. I mean, we are guilty of everything, of imperialism, whatever. But um, there isn't understanding that there are new empires which are growing and, and which, uh, which, will become, which will become authoritarian empires like Russia or China, whatever. And you right now need to defend yourself from this. Um, yeah, you, you probably know Europe much better than I do. I'm, you know, I have three lines of I mean, you're heritage. British. You're yeah, British. I'm British. I work in America and my roots are Ukrainian. So even though I spent my bits of my youth deeply embedded in the European project, I, I'm no longer sort of an active part of it. So I think you know much more about it than I do. I have a much greater chance of ever becoming a member of the European Parliament if I sort of take up Ukrainian citizenship and dump my British one. So um, maybe, uh, but let's take something that's more universal than, than Europe, um, which is this idea of civil society. Yeah, which is meant to be one of the, one of the things that makes democracy different from authoritarian, a vibrant civil society. And there's always these foundations, institutions to support civil society. Of course, the biggest one in the world, the most famous one, Open Society Foundation is currently imploding um, as a kind of symbol, I think, of the end of this theory of civil society, which was always a weird theory, to be honest. It was always like all the stuff outside of government and business, which is really being supported by foundations. I mean, it was always kind of weird. But its theory was always, we'll just you know, help these civil society organizations grow they're going to be little guys they grow a little bit of independent media and a little bit of human rights activism and a little bit of of uh, um, a little bit of, of something else um arts and and together they'll a million seeds will grow and they'll support democracy this was very much this development model that you know everything was heading towards democracy we've just got to tend to the garden a little bit and it was very interesting speaking to civil society organizations in hungary in Georgia, before that in Russia, and now in America, who suddenly realize they're on, under attack and just completely confused. Like, we're under attack from our governments, usually, who treat this like a war, who say these civil society organizations, they are information warfare from the West. They are the, you know, the cultural front. Foreign of, agents. For, foreign agents or, or domestic agents or the cultural front of a, of a major culture war. And they were, they were just completely confused. Like, what's, what's going on? We're just hitting a bit of human rights activist. 
completely incapable of defending themselves and of thinking about this like a war, because that's how the other side sees it and obliterated in Hungary, in Russia, and now on the sort of huge attack in, in America. Um, so if you take that one example of a whole sector whose theory of change is, I think, rooted in a set of assumptions that are no longer true and has no theory of practice, how do we defend ourselves or how do we go on the attack? I mean, even something like investigative journalism, you know, which is the bit of journalism that has generally been supported not by f money because it doesn't make, it's very slow, it sort of needs support from, from philanthropy and from society. Even that, which is meant to be the hardest tool in civil society's armor, that relies on a theory of change that you get information out there. You'll find the dirt about an authoritarian leader. You'll find the scandal and they will be brought down. And it turns out, no, they'll just go, who cares? So even that theory of change is broken down. So civil society needs to completely transform for a world where it's under attack. And there's ways of doing that. Um, and there's many examples of civil society that has taken a much more, uh, a much more focused approach to success and to defending itself. The Green Movement, for example, you know, Greenpeace, I think, is a really good example of a group that, from civil society that approached the environmental debate like a battle and won, essentially. So, so that has to transform completely as well. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And then there's always a lot of fear, and I understand that, about using, you know, securitized discourse around civil society, around information. And I understand that. I mean, there's only so many times you can you can use the word weaponized before you just before it becomes redundant. But the reality is our opponents think of this as a kinetic war, as an economic war, and as a political war. And we don't. When we talk about the the real war, the hot war, I mean the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you you, you talk about this kind of a the the problems in the West, but we understand that without the support of our partners, well, Ukraine will, of course, resist, it will struggle, but it will be very difficult for Ukraine to struggle and to survive. What are your vision of the 2024? What, uh, what can we expect? Well, firstly, we need the, the allies of Ukraine to start seeing the threat of Russia and its network as their own fight, not simply aiding Ukraine. As long as we're in a paradigm of aiding Ukraine, we're in a very weak position. They have to see it as deeply part of their fight, deeply part of their interests, and deeply part of their vision for the future. Russia can only be stopped when it sees credible limits to what it does. I mean, anyone who lives near Russia or has lived in Russia just knows that those are the rules of its society and the rules of its neighborhood. It stops when it's stopped. There's only so much Ukraine can do to stop it. It can stop it on the front lines. But if you really want to stop it, bigger powers need to step in. That still hasn't happened. To give you an example, guess how many people 
at OFAC or at the part of the US government that's meant to focus on sanctions focus just on enforcing Russia sanctions? How many? None. There is no Russian department. It doesn't exist. I mean, now they might be hiring, so my information might be a month or two old, but when somebody explains, it's like, no one. There's just the people who enforce sanctions. They're doing a bit of Hamas, Colombia cartel, a bit of Russia. The way sanctions are put together, sanctions were meant to be the big Western weapon, is random. No one sat down and done a unified map of Russian vulnerability, said this is where we direct the sanctions. This is how we apply economic pressure, political pressure, cyber pressure, all the tools at our disposal to disrupt, let's say, their military supply chains. A sign that the West has taken this seriously would be Russia, would be US, EU, UK, others, to come together, create a joint cell to degrade and disrupt Russian military supply chains. Using the full spectrum of capabilities that we would use if we had been attacked. We are nowhere near that. So when we see those things happening, then we'll know the West is getting what you call the West. First, we'll know the West exists, because the West exists in actions. That will be an action that shows the West exists. The other one is, is European defense. I mean, the Americans have a point. These isolationists in America have a very good point when they say that Europe doesn't pull its weight, that it parasites off America a little bit. That has been the case for many decades. This is, you know, the Trumpists are effective when they take arguments that are partly true and then inflate them or emotionalize them. So there have been pledges to support Ukraine that were made at the last NATO summit, which simply haven't been followed up on at all. And the problem I suspect is one of political will and organization. If we can see that Europe can organize the defense production it needs to deter Russia itself and to help Ukraine as well, then we'll know it's getting serious. So if we get to the end of the year with a coherent strategy to undermine Russia's military sector, mechanisms in place for Europe to defend itself properly and defend Ukraine and help defend Ukraine, then we'll see a new West. And I don't mean the West as an Eichspenglerian idea, I mean as a series of political mechanisms that show democracies can work together. So that's more where we might end up at. We could equally end up at Trump as president. Now Trump is a weird guy. He can be many things. You know, he's also the guy who bombed Syria and killed Soleimani. So Trump is, every, you know, it's very hard to pin an ideology to Trump. It's many things. But with real ideologues everywhere around him. So Ramaswamy as vice president, Matt Gates as secretary of state. You know, if you read what the Trump think, the, not Trump, the America first think tanks, right? It's very explicit what they write. We do not care about Europe. It is not our problem. We do not care about NATO. Not our problem. Let Europe deal with it. Big guys. The argument they make, by the way, is very interesting. The argument they make is that Russia has shown itself to be so incompetent in this war that there is no more credible threat to Europe. Therefore, NATO is not necessary. That's the argument they make. Because Russia did so badly, it will obviously never touch 
any country in the West, we can just forget it. And Ukraine can just be, they always use Austria as the example, or Finland. We make, Ukraine becomes Finland, sort of, we call it neutral, soft colonization by Russia, sacrifice it, doesn't matter. They won't go any further because we know now how weak Russia really is and we can focus on whatever else we want to do. That's the argument they make. So we could end up in that place, not with the West coming together through into political mechanisms that stand up to the authoritarian network, but the complete fracturing, the complete divide of Europe and America, which has always been Russia's main foreign policy aim, divide Europe and America. I think that <clears throat> that's a big illusion to think that Russia is weak and it cannot go But that's farther. the argument they make. That's because the argument actually, they make. if you look at the Russian wars, well, one, one thing about Russia is that um, it has patience. It can sacrifice whatever number of people it wants. Uh, it can regroup itself. It can organize a total mobilization. And then, of course, uh, it, it is now going uh, to the militarized economy. So if Ukraine fails here, for me, it is obvious that Russia will you know, proceed further. Oh, and they're outproducing Europe. I mean, they're outproducing, um, outproducing us. Um, so, and Russia has often failed at the start of a military campaign and then learned and then adapted. They have quite a good history of that. You know, I'm not saying I agree with this position. All I'm saying is that is the argument that the think tanks whose members will st could well soon be run in power in America say. That is their argument. So what about Europe? I mean, uh, I agree uh, with your skepticism about it, right? Because Europe took its own construction as a kind of illusion. There is this European myth that, oh, we have been built on, on peace and uh, uh, lasting peace. But there was no appreciation that this peace was guaranteed by NATO, by American uh, security umbrella, and what we do if this umbrella disappears. Do you, do you see Europe kind of waking up? Because we, we see the security agreement between UK and Ukraine. We see kind of a, some signals from Germany who are much more uh, implied right now and are much more decisive than they were in, in 2022. Uh, we see some signals from France. What do you think? So, listen, I am very good at understanding culture and political culture. That's what I focus on. And I understand that without institutions, it doesn't mean very much. But I, I really struggle with, with, you know, Europe as a thing. <laughs> Sorry, I guess I... I, I don't quite know what we mean. So there is clearly a northern flank developing. Britain, the Scandinavians, the Baltics, who all see Russia as their threat, who see this as their fight. They're in one place. I don't know where France and Germany are. You can tell me. You know much more about them than I do. There's many parts of Europe who still, this is something far away that they'll help with, like Spain or something. So I don't know. I'm just not the right person to ask about that. There is clearly a northern flank developing. And I hope that will strengthen. But it's it's very hard for me to read Europe. Um, overall, I'm still not sure that they see it as their... I'm still not sure they've woken up to this new world. You know, I still think they... Brussels, as a set of institutions, thinks it can... The, the, the institutional logic is still to 
do trade deals with authoritarian regimes and that's the way to peace. I'm not sure that has ended. What we really probably, maybe we'll know when something has changed, when we start talking about trade and security and rights together. Yeah? When we start talking about decoupling seriously from China and Russia and other places. When we said, when that logic that you talked about, this cultural logic, we will just trade our way to Kantian peace. When that has gone and there's a realization that that actually is makes us vulnerable and we should be redirecting our economic energies around partners that um, around partners that, that share our values and our security alliances. So putting it very simply, when we see defense manufacturing no longer doing business with China, Russia, and making sure that no dual-use goods could ever appear there and start pouring it into Ukraine instead. When there's a strong message from governments, commissioners saying, do not do any more deals with countries who are a security threat, and instead redirect all your industrial capacity to our allies. So basically a complete re-ideological refilling. And I don't mean complete separation. It's not the Cold War. You know, I assume that for the moment anyway, it still finds a sort of Mercedes to, you know, make cars in China with all their comfortable labor laws for a company like that. Um, but I'm talking about a real understanding. Because at the moment when you speak to these companies, they're like, okay, we'll leave Russia, but they don't really, you know. There's no, there's no punishment for them if their goods are still used in Russia. So there's no active stopping Western industry to be used in Russian military. China is fine, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that'll be the moment when we know Europe has changed, when, when it has a sort of a trade policy that's directed around security priorities. Last year, we have been talking a lot about Ukraine's victory. <clears throat> and this year, some people already talk about possibility as a one of scenarios of Ukrainian defeat in this war. Uh, do you think it is possible? Do you think that the whole occupation of Ukraine by Russia is possible in, in the next years? Or do you think that if Ukraine, if Russia shows the signs of winning in this war, then it will be probably a factor which will remobilize the West. So there's a lot we have to define winning. Um, so there's many ways to undermine Ukrainian sovereignty. One is taking Kiev, the other one is threatening to take Kiev, and then, you know, a negotiation where Ukraine has to agree that all its security ministries contain members of the Russian Federation, or that all its pol well, it has de jure sovereignty, but all major policy decisions are checked with Moscow. You know. Like during Yanukovych? Well, Finlandization was a little bit like that as well, you know, where the Russia had a stake in every major political decision that was made. It's definitely every major foreign policy decision. So there's lots of ways of losing sovereignty without tanks running into Kiev, but probably the credible threat of tanks running into Kiev, or just non-stop bombardment, non-stop aerial bombardment crushing the Ukrainian economy is, is also a way out. So there's lots of ways of using losing sovereignty without Russian flags flying over, over Bunkala. So we have to define winning. 
I assume if winning is Ukraine keeping its sovereignty and its freedom and its decision-making, then, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the line that we have to draw. There's a real danger that even without taking Kiev, um, the other scenario might start looking possible and likely. But you told me once, I think we met several weeks before, and you told me that, look, uh, there is no political will in America or Europe to help Ukraine decisively win, but there is also no readiness to let Russia win. Do you still think so? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's still the baseline. Um, if we mean by Ukraine retaking all its territory. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, definitely that's been the... As far as one can understand what on earth the White House is doing, that seems to have been their de facto line. Um, and yeah, I think the specter for a certain type of politician who still remembers the old political West, that is, that is something that they're very motivated by. You can't let Putin win for many reasons. I mean, Biden said that. Ukraine will never be a win for Russia. But, you know, given how elections might change and given the inability to, to come together, then maybe that's what they want, but that doesn't mean necessarily it's what they can do. When we look back uh, into this war, uh, what we see, Ukraine was given three days and uh, it survived, it defended Kyiv, it, it has three major victories around Kyiv, around Kharkiv, around Kherson. Yes, it, it did move as fast as it, as it wanted to for different reasons, but we are now sitting in Kyiv, well, there are air alerts, but uh, the, the city looks you know, as a, as a normal European city. There are lots of people, lots of, lots of cars, uh, lots of, well, a normal, a normal peaceful life, um, with the exception that sometimes there are rockets who are killing people, right? Just that small detail. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but still, it's, it's not Kiev in March 2022, when I was here and there was practically nobody and the, the half of the city has left and the other half turned into a fortress. Ukraine is downing Russian airplanes very successfully. It has really threatened Russian Black Sea fleet. It has succeeded to, uh, to break the Russian uh, um, maritime blockade. Russia is, well, Russian economy is also not that good. Russian, Russians have deep problems in, in uh, arms production. So they also have lots of weaknesses. And given all that... I see lots of pessimism in, in, with my Western friends and, and colleagues. Uh, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about uh, other people who are really coming with this very pessimistic message about the future, which for us Ukrainians is very painful to hear, you know, because we have a lot of, of this pessimistic future thinking, and if we are in this thinking, we will certainly lose. So don't you think that this is also a... A consequence, this kind of a pessimism, is a consequence of uh, also us and the Westerners not realizing that our opponents also have deep, deep troubles. They also have lots of 
lots of problems and lots of weaknesses and vulnerabilities? Oh, I mean, this is without a doubt, without a doubt. It's sort of like uh, when we talk about the discourse about Russia, there's these Scylla and Charybdis that you have to negotiate. And you negotiate them by analyzing the truth. But yes, on the one hand, you have certain members of potential future US governments making the argument that Russia is so weak, therefore we don't need to care about Europe anymore. Europe is fine, forget about it. We just have to focus on anything they want to focus on or focus on nothing. But we don't need Euro-Atlantic alliances anymore in any serious way. So there's one side. There's the other side, which is still very prevalent and it's still probably very, very close to the current US administration, which is Russia is a nuclear power, it's huge, our sanctions worked. Didn't, sorry, our sanctions didn't work. I think sanctions haven't been done, but they're not properly, not as a weapon. But they're like, nothing works, we can't touch them, we've got to compromise, sacrifice Ukraine, because Russia is so strong. So there's people still in awe of Russia. It'd be always interesting to understand why they're in awe of it. It's very interesting, very interesting psychological type that's in awe of it. Um, and so you have to walk between these two caricature um, ideas. And I quite agree. I mean, I'm doing a lot of analysis about what's happening in Russia um, and trying to not just use polling because that's, you can do clever polling in Russia. It's not true you can't do polling there, but it's very hard for obvious reasons. But if you look at things like economic data, discursive data, if you start putting together, you start to see the inner contradictions of the system. I mean, the greatest one, of course, is around this inflation that they've talked themselves into. Yes, the economy is doing better, but region by region by region, nobody believes in the ruble. We can tell that by how people are spending. Spending is going way faster than the growth in salaries. Spending is going way faster than the growth of the ruble, which means people don't believe the bullshit, don't believe in the ruble. All the propaganda is saying, you know, you know, stop getting into debt, calm down, the ruble is stable. The more they say that, the more people don't believe it and the more people are spending, spending, spending. Now, that's a structural problem in the economy. They can't deheat the economy because they're onto a military economy. So they have a real problem. And even in the regions that are doing really well economically from the war, Kazan, Samara, you know, where all the factories are, which are experiencing an economic boom, frankly, you have that problem there as well. There's new regional tensions between the economic winners and economic losers. So some regions have done well, others have done very badly, especially those in the west of Russia on the border. If one were to start using proper political and economic warfare against Russia, there are a lot of vulnerabilities. If one were to start doing much more in terms of stretching Russia militarily, huge NATO exercises in Northern Europe, that would start to stretch them militarily. They've committed all their forces in the South and in Ukraine. I don't know, if you're being very aggressive, I'm not saying I would do this, but there are obvious vulnerabilities like Kaliningrad, which you can blockade at any moment. So I'm not a military guy. I don't want to go there. All I'm trying to do is I'm not the man to design military policy. But if you want to start pressuring Russia economically, politically, militarily, it is a very, very vulnerable society and a very, very vulnerable economy and a very, very 
vulnerable um, security organism. <laughs> but no one is doing that because it's not our war. If this was our war, this was our fight, we would be doing that. Because then we would go, what are the vulnerabilities? How do we undermine them? At the moment, we're just like, help Ukraine. It, at the moment, it's still noblesse oblige for most of the West. I say different for the Balts, different for the Poles, different a little bit for the Brits, but to a certain extent. Um, so yes, it's very vulnerable, but so far, no action, no coherent action has been taken in that direction. Maybe my last question. So how to persuade our partners that it should be not a humanitarian aid to Ukraine, but it should be a realizing understanding that this is our common war. This is a, a war for our values. How to persuade Europeans, how to persuade Americans, how to persuade Japanese? So weirdly, the ones who seem to be the most, who get it the most, are the Asian countries. I mean, that's been one of the great stories of the war. The Japanese, the South Koreans, the Taiwanese all see the parallel, and that's why Japan is a huge sort of investor in Ukrainian reconstruction and so on. It's very funny in D.C. where I live, in Washington, there is a group of people who hope to be close to Trump when he wins, but who are also close to the Biden administration, but really hope to be close to Trump when he wins, who make the argument that China is the only thing we should worry about, Asia, we should forget about Europe, Ukraine is irrelevant, not our problem, Russia is irrelevant, all we should focus on is Asia. And the best, they are now completely confused because all the Asian countries are saying, no, no, we, we actually see the parallels here. And there's all these think tanks that churn out these papers saying there is no parallel between Taiwan and Ukraine. And look, there are similarities and dissimilarities, but the Taiwanese definitely see a parallel. And it's very funny seeing these, these DC think tankers who are just, you know, they, they have their own worldviews and there are many reasons why they only see the enemies of being of a certain type. But um, the fact that Asian countries already see this as interlinked, and Australia and New Zealand were very early backers, very interesting talking to people from New Zealand who at first were like, is this our war? And they're like, oh, yes, it is actually. And they've been very supportive in the ways that they can be. They see a parallel between the Pacific and Europe. So they kind of get it more than anyone else. Um, but you said how to persuade. You asked me a question about communication. That's a really good question. I think there are different, you know, the art of persuasion is finding the right arguments for the right audiences. I think there are different arguments to make because there is every reason to support Ukraine. There's economic reasons, security reasons, geopolitical reasons, reputational reasons. Every reason says support Ukraine. The reason the US is not supporting Ukraine right now, as in with the supplement, you know, as we speak, there is a blockage of Ukraine aid in Congress, has nothing to do with Ukraine. You've got to understand this. Nothing. The vast majority of congressmen and senators are for this. But the bigger priority is make Biden look bad in an election year. And they will blow up the world to win an election. That's, so the problem has nothing to do with Ukraine at all. So if you're looking for the solution to it, you know, the arguments have nothing to do with Ukraine, which is very hard to take because, you know, you go, you advocate, you make the arguments, you, you plead, and you realize it has nothing to do with any of the arguments you just made. So there's that tactical persuasion. 
But then there's the bigger narrative. And I think we're talking about persuasion. And we're talking about especially about persuading those groups in America and other countries that want to abandon the political West. They offer, like all, because they're nationalists, obviously, like all nationalists, they offer the sense of strength through the idea of an exclusive idea of the nation as a community. We're going to be strong. We're going to be powerful if we get rid of these parasites, these leeches, these, these, these immigrants and allies who are bleeding our strength dry. And we will be strong if we put America first and America is alone. That is their message. We are strong when we're alone. We're strong when we cut off all our ties. But actually, if you look at the sociology, most Americans yearn for community. In history, they're very nostalgic for the moments when the freedom-loving countries came together. So the only way you defeat that strength through isolationism is an even bigger strength, which is what we talked about at the start. The story and the practice of the freedom-loving countries coming together, bringing back the team, uh, but each playing its part and pulling its weight and facing up to this network of sort of criminal and regimes who really do have very different values to us. So, yeah, you only get to be bigger than America first or Hungary first or France first by expressing the, you know, expressing the ambition and the strength of what happens when we do put our military and our economic power together. We are so much stronger. So I think that's the way to go. Um, hmm. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for this conversation. This was a podcast explain Ukraine by Ukraine World, a multilingual website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am a Ukrainian philosopher, chief editor of Ukraine World and president of Pan Ukraine. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.